Welcome back to the program. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, I thank you, and I praise you for loving us enough to take care of us, that, Father, you lavish good things upon us in Jesus' name, that you bless us beyond what we deserve, and that you extend your generosity to us in so many ways. Lord, I repent for all of the times, all of the ways that I ignore your mercies, take them for granted, fail to thank you, and fail to honor you, Lord. Lord, just please forgive me for that. Give me a renewed heart. Give me a renewed focus. Make me new, Lord. Make my heart new. Make my life new so that I might know you and love you and honor you today in a whole new way, at a whole new level. Lord, I know that that's possible because you are a good and loving God. Make it so, Lord. And I make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I just prayed a prayer of renewal. An authentic prayer. I didn't plan it. I was prompted. Oh, there we go. Prompted by the Holy Spirit. I hope it was the Holy Spirit. Prompting me when I prayed to guiding my prayer to like follow a certain vein, to go in a certain direction. And that idea that the Holy Spirit is that intimately connected with our lives, that he actually shapes how I'm praying, that's, that, that's quite a thing. I think that it's something that many Catholics would find um, foreign, find surprising. Um, but it's attractive. I think it's attractive to hear the truth, this is the truth of our faith, that the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not only creating us and then just busy about other things while we live our lives, not even just watching us at a distance, but engaging, not only upholding us in love at every moment, but stirring in our hearts, speaking to us, communicating, communing with us, and doing so in a way that we can come to to mature, a mature sensitivity, a a mature sense of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. So that the things that we're doing or not doing, saying or not saying, things that we're thinking or not thinking, can be traced back to the motive power, the motivating power, the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we can come into that kind of intimate, personal, profound, and life-giving relationship with the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts in order to live a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received, that we can, in fact, advance along the path of holiness, that we can fulfill our identity to become saints. And in becoming the particular saint and the particular form of saintliness that is ours, that we too would be salt, light, and leaven, in our world, would fulfill the mission that is ours. Okay, all that's basic Christian discipleship. And it is, it's basic, it's foundational, it's fundamental. If you listen to Sound Insight, hopefully these things aren't new to you when you hear them. Um, At the same time, what about if we move from the individual level out to a bigger level? How about to the level of the church herself, to the very level of the, the church universal, the church spread throughout the world? Is there, a, is there an analogous, is there a corresponding in some ways movement of the Holy Spirit in the church? I was focused on 
the idea of the Holy Spirit moving in me, in my heart, in my life. What about in the body of Christ? And the answer is yes. I used the, the term, theolo- uh, the phrase, theological concept. The idea of a movement in the church's theology is that the Holy Spirit stirs up initiatives, stirs up directions, anoints individuals, often great saints, but not only, to be the instruments that he uses to help bring about a reviving or a deepening of the life of faith of the church in that age. So you have some amazing thinkers who have described in big picture, and that's all I have time for today, big picture, big picture idea that the church has this awakening of a new move of the Spirit, a new movement of the Spirit about every 500 years. And, and it's rough. This isn't, don't tell me it was 510 years or it was closer to 600 years. or <laughs> uh, to f- Battle with Archbishop Fulton Sheen, the venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen, hopefully on his way to becoming a saint. He would talk about these 500-year swaths of time, which, guess what, puts us in the year 2000 in one of those special moments, the special moments of a graced form of movement of the Holy Spirit. So it's on insight. I'm going to dig into that. I'm going to start by mapping out in, in accord with Archbishop Fulton Sheen's a vision of these 500-year chunks of time and how the Holy Spirit began to move in the church and, and fostered a movement in the church that was uh, the instrument that God used in, in very powerful ways to help the church continue to advance in her mission through history. And then I'm going to focus in on the more contemporary reality of movements. I'm going to talk a bit about Vatican II. I'm going to talk a bit about the idea of movements flowing from the Second Vatican Council. And then I'm going to hone in on the Catholic charismatic renewal as a movement. And in doing that, I'm going to trace back, in I think some surprising ways, I think you'll be surprised, some surprising ways of uh, the way in which the church was uh, preparing for this new move of the Holy Spirit in our time that is becoming manifest in a distinct way in the Catholic charismatic renewal. So lots to cover there, lots to cover. Uh, Oh, and by the way, I'll invite you more than once during this program, but what I'm sharing with you in this more calm, peaceful setting, unfolding it over the course of a radio program, is a a uh, similar teaching that I gave at the prayer meeting that I invited you folks to on um, Friday, I think it was. Uh, on Tuesday nights, we're meeting, and it's a it's it's a kind of a charismatic prayer meeting, and yeah, we're doing some praise and worship singing, and um, so some of that listening and communicating, like what's our sense that God's speaking to us. I give a teaching, and so that's where this comes in giving you a more expanded version of the teaching that I gave there. And and then times of fellowship and sharing. To, and, and what's the idea? Well, it's a movement. Well, what's a movement attempting to accomplish? A movement is a way in which the Holy Spirit stirs certain believers to live out the call that all Christians have, all followers of Jesus Christ have, all Catholic Christian disciples of Jesus have, in a way that will not replace 
but will complement and supplement, will aid and uh, stir the typical way of living Catholic life. So it's a, a way of the Holy Spirit saying or communicating to the church, if you struggle to live a vibrant life of faith, just doing Catholic stuff, fulfilling the duties of your state in life and going to Mass on Sunday and participating in certain church programs or, or events, and somehow that is not sufficient for you, that there's a hunger for more, a deeper fellowship, a deeper growth in your understanding of the faith, a deeper a deepening of your own spirituality, a deeper sharing of faith with other brothers and sisters, that's often where movements come in. Movements come in that tend to focus in on some specific aspects of the church's life and mission and says, let's live those out more intentionally and often more intense, intensively. So that's typically what movements will do. Like Curcio would be an example of a movement that many of you might have heard of. Younger people probably are not as familiar with the movement called Curcio. Um, that's an example. There's uh, many that are present and active around the world um, that uh, are, are maybe not quite as present here in the United States, like communion and liberation was a really big one in Europe, especially in Italy. The neo-catechumenal way was big in Europe, especially in Spain, but also in uh, Central South America. Uh, also, it has a presence here in the United States. Um, you have um, certain streams of charismatic life that took the form of, um, uh, took the form of um, covenant communities, uh, which would be these families that would choose to live in a similar geographic region and share their life together, the men, the women, the families, and, and in a covenanted relationship where they would make agreements to share their lives together in certain ways, not living in the same house specifically or uh, or that kind of thing, but it was a more intentional and intensive way of living what everyone was called to do. Okay, let's take th that concept of movement and let's see what Archbishop Sheen was pointing to when he said, hey, pay attention to these 500-year spans and you'll notice certain things emerging in the life of the church. So around the year 500, what do we notice? Well, we notice the rise of monasticism. So we had the fall of the Roman Empire. We have the invasion, uh, barbarian invasions coming. We have a basic decay and erosion of society. And therefore, many of the structures that were supportive of Catholic, Christian faith and life. And so the Holy Spirit's at work. The Holy Spirit's not watching on the sidelines powerless. So the Holy Spirit stirs in the West, Benedict, St. Benedict, and his... Uh, living of monastic life is magnetic and explosive. It's explosive in that it explodes and you have communities, monastic communities, growing up across the Western world, uh, starting in the East, right, in Egypt and in Palestine and in those areas, and then coming to the West and then exploding around Christianity. And that lasted for, well, here's one of the things. You know, in the first 500 years, you have this apostolic preaching, this time of preaching Christ to people who have never heard of him. And, and that continues on until Constantine um, uh, makes Christianity uh, acceptable, uh, a legal religion, and, um, 
and and all of a sudden this idea of Christianity not being known was a less of an impetus. But with the fall of the Roman Empire, we have this, well, this question, how will the faith be preserved? And so the monasteries became centers of living the Catholic life of faith more intensively and intentionally. And families would move to be around these communities, around these monasteries. Okay, so I'm going fast now. And this is simplistic, right? It's simple and even simplistic. Simplistic means that some of these things I'm saying with such broad strokes that you can make a case that some of those things, Tom, you know, you probably shouldn't have said that. That's probably not exactly right. <laughs> so I do realize that some of the things I'm saying don't apply in every in every case, okay? So yeah, let's take a look now. Pope, uh, sorry, Pope, Archbishop Fulton Sheen points to the second 500 years, and we have uh, this break with the Orthodox Church in the second 500 years, but we also see in this second 500 years a move that doesn't leave behind monasteries, but a move that begins to have uh, uh, holy men and women living consecrated life and evangelical poverty in the world. And so you have the mendicant orders. You have the Franciscans and the Dominicans, and they explode. There's an explosion of these two religious orders, and they are going out. They're living their consecrated life out in the world in a missionary fashion. And so you have this, again, not leaving behind the monastic stream of movement, but now bringing about another stream and this stream is connected to, again, the work of the Holy Spirit. So you have, in fact, you see this especially in um, the, the beginnings of the Franciscan uh, order. Um, a whole portion of the Franciscans were, um, were uh, called spiritual Franciscans, and they were talking about this age of the Spirit. And so this sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, this idea of moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit moving you, was definitely a prominent thing in this second 500 years. And there was um, a very strong effort to um, not only evangelize, but to uh, engage in the work of correcting error, apologetics and correcting error, uh, heresies that were growing up at the time and often were connected with charismatic type individuals um, and um, uh, claims of the presence of the Spirit at work in their midst. So, all right, we'll begin to break. When I come back, I'm going to jump into the third and fourth of these ages of the Spirit and of movements. Back in a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com. drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you today. So on the program, I am taking a look at uh, movements and the way in which the Holy Spirit does not sit on the sidelines, but in every age, 
in every age, the Holy Spirit is raising up saints, saints that are responding to the burning questions of an age. Their lives become God's answer to these deep burning questions of a time. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit stirs these great saints of these times is by fostering movements uh, that spread beyond individuals and move out into religious orders and then those that become associated with those orders to help bring about renewal, renewal that everyone is called to, but through association with these movements, Catholics, Catholic Christian disciples of Jesus find a way to live out that faith with greater intentionality and with a greater sense of intensiveness. Oh, by the way, do you think that we live in such a time? where in order to just get by in living your life of faith as a Catholic Christian disciple of Jesus in the world in which you are currently practicing it, do you think ordinary measures, typical activities of saying, I'll say my prayers, I'll strive to live in accord with my Catholic faith, and I'll go to Mass on Sunday, is going to get it done? Is it going to foster a deep sense of uh, burning uh, call to holiness and fulfilling God's mission in the time and, and magnetically and radiantly um, bringing the gospel and that call to holiness and mission uh, to other Catholics. Yeah, it, it certainly can if you are incredibly holy. If you are incredibly holy, you will radiate Christ in the smallest of gestures. But for the majority of us, we will find that ordinary the ordinary practice of our Catholic faith will be a recipe for diminished faith and for losing faith rather than handing faith on in our families. That's not me talking. That's statistics talking. That's not me talking. That's Democrat. That's demo, uh, demographic numbers and surveys. This is not some kind of hidden reality. Talk to grandparents. Talk to parents who raised their kids in these past 30 20, 10 years, only to see them come through sometimes 12 or 16 years of Catholic schools, only to have them walk away from their Catholic faith at the snap of a finger, that somehow that faith did not take root, transform them into fired up disciples. So is there a need for movements today? Absolutely. Has the Holy Spirit provided for such movements? Absolutely. Are you going to be surprised at the fact that if we are going to fulfill our call, we might have to seriously consider getting involved in one of these movements. That's between you and the Lord. That's between you and the Lord. Okay, let me come back because I skipped 500 years. <laughs> okay, so I, I've mentioned in accord with Archbishop Fulton Sheen, 500, the, year, the first 500 years, the second 500 years, the third 500 years. Okay, now, um, so now we're at the, around the year 1500, and so this is the time of Reformation. Not only the Protestant Reformation, but the Catholic Counter-Reformation. And if you stop and say, what marks, what's the distinctive mark of that 500 years, uh, of, of the time flowing from the, the Reformation? It would be recovering what had been lost. Re going back to the origins and recovering a deepened uh, appreciation for and adherence to the origins. And, and I don't just mean you see that in Protestant reformers who talk about recovering the gospel in its pristine form or certain doctrines that they believe or mistakenly believe were, uh, were covered over by uh, 
a thicket of beliefs and practices that were hiding the gospel rather than revealing the gospel, even if there are elements of truth in that. Um, but rather, you can see it in, in the Catholic counter-reformation. The Catholic counter-reformation, I think, is most beautifully exemplified by St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. They were part of a reformation of what? Well, they weren't principally going after Protestants. They were principally going after their own community, the Carmelites. And their call, their, the movement of God in them, the movement of the Holy Spirit in them was, hey, we have to go back to the rule of life. We have to honor, embrace, and live this rule with greater fidelity and, if I had to use the word severity, right? Uh, no more laxity, that somehow we'd fallen away from the, the, uh, the deepest meaning of our rule because of the way that it was being lived out at the time. We need to reform our own order. And so that concept of reforming is reaching back into the origins to find a source of renewal. And so Let's call that the uh, the fourth set of, let's see, the first 500 years, second 500 years, third 500 years. First 500 is up to 500, and that was a time of going out. The second 500 was a time of stepping apart. So let's step apart. Instead of going forward, let's step apart. The third 500 was about let's go back. Let's go back and let's recover what had been lost. Well, what about now? If we take a look at the time in which we're living and we read the signs of the times, we look around for the, the, the ways in which the Holy Spirit has been active in the saints of our time, saints like Mother Teresa and John Paul II um, and others, but if we just look at the saints and the ways in which God has been at work in the church, we're going to notice some of what the, the Lord is doing and we can see a theme we see a theme that shows up at the Second Vatican Council, that this council wasn't so much about correcting errors. It was about opening the, the windows, opening the windows of the church to let in the fresh wind of the Spirit for a new Pentecost. St. Uh, John Twenty-Third, Pope John Twenty-Third, called for a new Pentecost that would come through the Second Vatican Council. So there was this sense of openness to the renewal of the church in the Holy Spirit. So the role of the Holy Spirit renewing the church in our time was a foundational theme that was posited by St. Pope John XXIII at the beginning of the Second Vatican Council. So... One of the things that shows up in the Second Vatican Council is this conversation about where does renewal happen? Well, uh, no, sorry. Where are the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed? Are they given only to the institutional dimension of the church? These gifts and charisms given to bishops, priests, deacons, to the institutional dimension of the church? Or are we to expect that the Holy Spirit, who lavished his gifts and charisms, his graces, charism is, a, is just a Greek word for grace or gift, his gifts and graces, 
uh, he lavished them upon the early church, not only upon the apostles, but upon so many believers who were then operating in the gifts of the Spirit, ought we to expect that those gifts would be operating today in the body of Christ, or should we principally or only look for those gifts, graces, those charisms to be operating in the institutional dimension of the church? And this was a debate. It was one of the things that bishops did at the Vatican Council, was when texts would come forward and be presented, bishops would come up and they would uh, they would make a case to say, yes, we agree with this text, or no, here's my complaint. I don't think this is correct in saying it like this. Well, they uh, they had their debate around this text. It was in Lumen Gentium, uh, which is the dogmatic constitution on the church. It was one of the first documents that was approved by the Second Vatican Council. And in fact, they said yes. And so the final text talks about these gifts of the Spirit. For those of you that are interested in the paragraphs, paragraph four of Lumen Gentium talks about hierarchical and charismatic gifts, just mentions those two categories of hierarchical gifts. Think of gifts related to the institution and ministries of the church. And then the charismatic gifts are gifts that will be explained in paragraphs seven and 12 as gifts given to the whole body, the whole body of the church um, that are to be expected to be used by the Holy Spirit to be useful in fulfilling the mission of the church. I'll just read one little part of paragraph 12. Uh, It is not only through the sacraments and ministries of the church that the Holy Spirit sanctifies and leads the people of God and enriches it with virtues. So there's the institutional dimension, right? The hierarchical giftings of the Spirit, where the Holy Spirit's at work, uh, ministering through the ministries of bishops, priests, and deacons, and through the institution, the sacraments. There's the Holy Spirit sanctifying and leading the people of God. But, the paragraph continues, allotting his gifts to everyone according as he wills, he distributes special graces among the faithful of every rank. By these gifts, he makes them fit and ready to undertake the various tasks and offices which contribute toward the renewal and building up of the church, according to the words of the Apostle. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone for profit. These charisms, whether they be the more outstanding or the more simple and widely diffused, are to be received with thanksgiving and consolation for they are perfectly suited to and useful for the needs of the church. Extraordinary gifts are not to be sought after, nor are the fruits of apostolic labor to be presumptuously expected from their use. But judgment as to their genuineness and proper use belongs to those who are appointed leaders in the church, to those whose special competence it belongs not indeed to extinguish the Spirit, but to test all things and to hold fast what is good. So, I don't know about you, but that's pretty striking stuff. Here we have this concept of the charisms and giftings of the Spirit being poured upon the whole body of Christ, members of the church, the lay faithful, that's you and me, for the sake of the building up of the body. And that these gifts are given to you and to me. 
Did you ever, did you ever hear that before? Did you ever think about that? And there are some gifts that are more widely distributed, but there are other gifts that are, are, are rarer and even extraordinary. And I just think that's so beautiful and it's something that we should bring out and reflect on and say, well, wait a minute. When, when did the Holy Spirit give me those gifts? How do I know what those gifts are? How do I even learn to grow in those gifts? You know, if people give you like a, a gift of uh, like, hey, I'm going to give you a computer and on that computer is video editing software. Well, guess what? Thank you for that gift. It's a pretty complicated gift. It's going to take a lot of time and effort for me to master that gift. What about the gifts of the Spirit? We're giving gifts, but where do we go to discern the gifts we have discern how to operate in those gifts, and then to grow and, and to exercise those gifts. Well, the, this isn't a place for the whole theology of, of gifts, but the church does talk about the way in which those who are stirred by these giftings need to stay in faithful relationship with the hierarchy, those who have the hierarchical gifts with the institution, so that not only is there good order, but the bishops and those in communion with them can help discern the proper use of the gifts and the genuineness of the gifts. It's funny, the uh, translation here was genuinity. <laughs> what they're saying was genuineness. So I, I, I just am going to ponder, I'm going to have you ponder that question. If, um, if someone said to you, Oh, what are the gifts of the Spirit that you've received? And I hope that you would point to the theological gifts, faith, hope, and love, that you'd point to the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, etc. But that if I said to you, well, what about this idea of charismatic gifts? These gifts and graces that have a purpose that is associated specifically with extending the gospel, proclaiming God's kingdom, manifesting the power of God in missionary purposes, for missionary purposes, in settings where you are evangelizing, spreading the light of Christ, speaking the holy name of Jesus. All of a sudden, that's where there's this huge gap, a huge gap in so many of our lives of faith. And this is something that I, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about today, um, because in this, in this moment, one of the ways, one of the movements that the Spirit, Holy Spirit stirred uh, in the Catholic Church, following from the Second Vatican Council, is the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. And so the Catholic Charismatic, oh, there it is, Charismatic, Charisma, Charisms, the Catholic Charismatic Renewal is a movement that is specifically associated with that theme that I just described, which is that the Holy Spirit does indeed distribute generously, lavishly his gifts, not only his gifts that sanctify us, that make us holy, but also charisms, charismatic gifts, to help us to extend our lives on mission that also help us to extend and to deepen our lives of faith together as brothers and sisters who live a life in the Spirit. So I'm going to explore more about that 
And you're going to be surprised at the origin of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. I think you are, because it wasn't in 1967. It was earlier. How early? I'll tell you in a minute. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you today. Do me a favor, would you please, if you're enjoying this program, would you go to Apple Podcasts? If you have an Apple, an iPhone, you can easily just open up the Apple Podcast and you can type in the Dr. Tom Curran Podcast. And that will get you to this program so that you can hear it anytime, day or night. So if you are not able to listen to the program during the 8 to 9 hour in the morning or the rebroadcast at 9 at night, you can listen to it anytime you want. You can subscribe to the Dr. Tom Curran podcast. That'll give you the ability to uh, enjoy these podcasts, uh, even apart from the times in which you hear them uh, live on Sacred Heart Radio. Okay. Oh, if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know how to go on to Apple Podcasts on your phone, you can go to MyCatholicFaith.org. MyCatholicFaith.org also gives you the ability right there on that page to sign up, to subscribe for the Apple Podcast, the Dr. Tom Curran Podcast. Okay, back to the program, talking about uh, movements, and specifically the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. If you've been to a Catholic Charismatic prayer meeting, or if you've done any reading about the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, you'll read as a standard idea that the Catholic Charismatic Renewal came from or was associated with uh, the uh, Pentecostal movement, the Pentecostal movement that happened in the 20th century. And so there's an interesting history of the Pentecostal movement and how the Holy Spirit started stirring up believers in these small groups in Topeka, Kansas, in Azusa Street, in Los Angeles, and then making its way across the country and in different denominations, leading up to, finally, after the Second Vatican Council, 1967, at a retreat weekend um, from students who were at Duquesne University. They made a, a retreat weekend at the Ark and the Dove Retreat House outside of Pittsburgh, where they were prayerfully discussing uh, the book, The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson, in which there's a chapter where he describes the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the special grace of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by the releasing of these charismatic gifts. And uh, as they were reflecting on it over the course of this weekend on Saturday night, uh, one after the other of the members of this uh, retreat found themselves upstairs in the chapel, and one after the other, they began to experience themselves this baptism in the Holy Spirit, and it manifested in this overwhelming sense of God's presence, His power, this sense of intimacy with 
God the Father, the sense of uh, power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus in his nearness, but then also special charismatic gifts. I won't go into many more details there, but just to say that, and then from there it, it flows to uh, Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, to University of Notre Dame within the next couple of months, and other and the leaders from those initial events back in 1967, believe it or not, many of them are still active in the Catholic Charismatic Renewal today. Here we are, 55 years later. So um, with that said, is that the beginning of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal? No, it's not. It's actually kind of interesting. In order to understand the way in which this, and I think what happens is that some folks have trouble with the idea that the Catholic Charismatic Renewal somehow was late to the game, right? Late to the game, sort of flowing from the Second Vatican Council that ended in 1965, right? Mentioning that that document, uh, the Constitution of the Church in the Modern World. I'm sorry, the Constitution of the the dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium, um, and the way in which, well, it, it seems to have reached all these other denominations, and you have Pentecostalism then. Isn't Pentecostalism then the somehow the origin of the Catholic charismatic renewal? And the answer is, there's more to the story. And so, interesting, how do we, what are you, what are you talking about, Tom? Well, ask the typical Pentecostal, what's the origin of the Pentecostal movement? And they'll say, January 1st, 1901, in Topeka, Kansas, this little schoolhouse, uh, this little group of believers was gathered together, and while they were praying on January 1st, 1901, the Holy Spirit fell upon this young lady, uh, and she started to manifest the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And... Um, and so that's, that's how they tell the story, right? So they tell the story that, um, sure enough, this little girl started speaking in tongues when the Holy Spirit uh, uh, was invoked by a lay evangelist, a Methodist, and, and there we go. So that's where it started, right? Agnes Oz, uh, Osman um, happened in January 1st, 1901. And from there... Five years later, in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, you had another group of people praying. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. Similar signs and wonders, deeds of power, praise and worship, charismatic gifts show up. Okay, why did I keep mentioning January 1st, 1901? Well, it's the first day of the 20th century. The first day of the 20th century was January 1st, 1901. Well, was there anything special that happened? on December 31st, 1900, the day before. Or even really specifically, the night before. The answer is yes. On the night of December 31st, at the midnight mass, Pope Leo XIII, Pope Leo XIII, raised his hands and at the beginning of mass prayed the Veni Creator Spiritus, come creator spirit, he prayed that the Holy Spirit would fall upon, listen now, not just the Catholic Church, but all Catholics and Christians in the world and upon the 20th century. Okay, I want you to hear that. 
the Holy Spirit was invoked by Pope Leo XIII. And on that very night, and the next morning in Topeka, Kansas, this little girl starts manifesting the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. Now, you might ask yourself, why would, if that was God, if that was a work of God, why would God do it like that? Why wouldn't God have the Holy Spirit fall upon a group of nuns praying in a convent or upon a parish uh, praying uh, you know, a, a mass uh, for the Feast of Mary, the Mother of God, the Feast on January 1st? Why a little girl, a Methodist in Topeka, Kansas? Well, the answer is, I have no idea. But I have a thought. I have a reflection. And that thought and reflection is connected to the way the bishops responded to Pope Leo XIII, not on December 31st, 1900, but during that decade leading up to December 31st, 1900. What am I talking about? Let's talk about the pontificate of Pope Leo XIII. So Pope Leo XIII was um, was uh, a pope during the uh, mid 1880s through early 1900s, and if you say what's Pope Leo XIII famous for, what's he known for? I think people would point to three or maybe four things. Some who are familiar with the Church's social teaching uh, would point to Rerum Novarum, that papal encyclical that highlighted the a role in the rights and the dignity of workers. And so Rerum Novarum, a very important document, lots of folks would say that is one of the enduring uh, uh, aspects of his legacy. Second would be Attorney Patris. Attorney Patris was another encyclical in which he highlighted the preeminence of St. Thomas Aquinas and of Thomism as a philosophical system as the perennial philosophy and the greatest of Catholic philosophers and theologians and talked about the way in which his writings and thought ought to be uh, continued and explored and expanded in the church. Third uh, would be his uh, encounter with, or the way when he was at Mass, and he was frozen in place, and he had this encounter with Christ and the devil, Christ and Satan having a conversation. And the fruit of that conversation was the St. Michael the Archangel prayer. I'll talk about that in a minute. The last one, and I'm not sure how many people are, would be aware of this last one, would be the number of encyclicals he wrote on the rosary. He wrote, a, like I don't know, seven-ish encyclicals on the rosary, like, wow. So, but there's something else that he should have been known for, but unfortunately isn't known for. And it's connected to December 31st, 1900. I'll tell you what it is in a minute on Sound Insight.
Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. So I am reflecting on the history of movements in the church and following the map out of Archbishop Fulton Sheen and these every 500 year swaths of time, the Holy Spirit moves in a particular way to bring about the fulfilling of the church's call to be to be holy and to fulfill its mission of proclaiming Christ and bringing about the redemption won by Christ, and how we're living in this time of renewal, that the Holy Spirit is moving in the church to bring about a renewal of the church's vigor and vitality in our time. And boy, oh boy, do we need it. If we want to talk about a time of decay, a time of difficulty, and and, and a time of diminishment of the Catholic faith, the the statistics tell a terrifying and tragic story. But much worse than statistics are, are people's lives, families' lives, generations not handing on the faith. And God is not, God's not going to sit on the sidelines. God's moving, and God's Holy Spirit is moving. So we'll explore that in a minute, but let's come back to Pope Leo because I think there's more to tell here. So the story you probably remember it is if you have uh, any sense of like devotion to or connection with the um, the the idea of um, uh, what's it called of the Saint Michael the Archangel uh, prayer um, it refers to an event that happened in 1884 on October 13th of all days right so you think of the the connection potentially to uh, the dates of the vision of Our Lady of Fatima, right? So it was on October 13th. All right, so 1884, here you have the Pope, and depending on the account you read, the Pope had just finished saying Mass, or had finished saying Mass, and was present at the Mass of the priest who was presiding at the Mass of Thanksgiving. So he, had, he himself had finished saying Mass that particular morning and was in prayer, present, while another priest was presiding at a Mass of Thanksgiving. So whether he was coming down from Mass as it was over, or whether it was during his prayer of Thanksgiving, during his presence at another Mass, he froze in place. And there was a look of horror on his face. And according to some accounts, they felt his pulse, like, is he still alive? And when he finally shook out of it, he went over uh, and he got some paper and he wrote out the St. Michael the Archangel prayer. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection against the wickedness and the snares of the devil, etc. And he wrote it out and he commanded that that prayer would be sent to all the bishops of the world and that they would pray that prayer at the end of every Mass. And um, that's something that disappeared after the Second Vatican Council. Um, but I'm, I'm actually seeing more parishes that are doing that. Uh, yeah, at St. Mary's, Father Jeff Lewis does that. And uh, at St. Joan of Arc, we do that. Um, the prayer of St. Michael prayer. So um, lots of par- uh, parishes are starting to recover that, um, that custom. Okay, so, but where did that come from? What, what was it that Pope Leo experienced. Well, he reports that he experienced an, uh, this coming into the awareness of Christ talking to Satan, and Satan was saying, give me a hundred years, 
and I'll destroy the church. And uh, Christ said, okay, I'll give you permission. What century do you want? He says, give me the 20th century. Give me the 20th century, I'll destroy your church. And it's interesting because according to like some accounts, and I, I was trying to find it, I was trying to find the account um, that Christ included in this dialogue a response that said, I give you the 20th century, but I will pour my spirit upon this century. I will pour my spirit out uh, upon the 20th century. And um, I, I couldn't find the specific reference to that in the, in the time that I had, but... Um, Okay, so here we have that encounter. Well, several years later, he has the encounter not with uh, Satan and Christ, but with a little nun, <laughs> a little old nun. And this is where I'm going to say the Catholic Charismatic Renewal finds one of its most important sources. It's in this sister of the whole, uh, an oblate sister of the Holy Spirit named Elena. Guerra. Elena Guerra um, is an Italian nun, Sister Elena Guerra, um, living in Lucca. That, that's a province of Italy near like Pisa, so northwest section, north central west uh, section of Italy. And uh, grew up in a devout Catholic family, etc., etc. She becomes a sister and um, she has a tremendous devotion to the Holy Spirit. Well, she begins to write some letters to the Pope, Pope Leo XIII, urging him to establish this devotion to the Holy Spirit. And um, the Pope gets these letters and isn't doing anything. <laughs> He's not responding. Well, this little sister is not going to relent. So she continues to write. And she ends up writing a total of 13 letters over the course of several years saying, the Lord intends for you to foster deeper devotion and even to establish institutional devotion to the Holy Spirit. And he writes a, an apostolic letter, releases it, but nothing happens. Sister comes back, not enough. Jesus says, not enough, you got to do more. So he finally writes an encyclical. Like that's, okay, fine, apostolic letter, that can be ignored. You cannot ignore an encyclical. Divinum illud munis. It's his encyclical on the Holy Spirit. And in this encyclical on the Holy Spirit, this is what he says. Listen to this. He says, we decree and command that throughout the whole Catholic Church, this year and in every subsequent year, a novena shall take place before Pentecost Sunday in all parish churches. Okay, did you hear that? And it goes on. I mean, it goes on and talks about no excuse, bishops, no getting around this. You can't not have it take place, and if people can't make it, they can do it at home, they can pray it themselves, but we decree and command 
that throughout the whole Catholic Church, this year and in every subsequent year, a novena shall take place before Pentecost Sunday in every parish church. You got it? Well, of course you remember all the novenas to the Holy Spirit you've taken a part in, haven't you? You haven't. This was ignored by the bishops. They did not do their job. Pope commanded it. He decreed it. He put it in an encyclical this year, every year, every parish. What could be simpler? What could be clearer? A prayer begging for the Holy Spirit to fall upon the church, to fall upon their lives, to fall upon their communities. And they failed. And they failed. And so I'll come back and say, when the Pope said, okay, that's it, I'm consecrating, dedicating the entire century to the Holy Spirit, I'm going to cry out, come, Creator Spirit, fall upon all Christians, all Catholics, all churches, I'm not surprised that the next morning, God's like, you know what, you bishops, you're missing out, fine, I'm going to pick a little girl, a Methodist, a little girl in Topeka, Kansas, Pope prays in Rome, come Holy Spirit, fall upon the church. And it's a little girl in Kansas that starts the ball rolling. So interestingly, the hidden to Pentecostals history of the charismatic renewal is not found in Topeka, Kansas, but in Vatican City. (laughs) And trace it back further to a little nun from Lucca, Italy. So today, we are the recipients of this the grace that Pope Leo prayed for. And that grace is still at work today. That grace is still available today. We can pray for and receive this grace of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a very quick history of the charismatic Catholic Charismatic Renewal as a movement that the Holy Spirit has stirred up flowing from the Second Vatican Council, but really traced back to the middle of the last century and a little nun in Northern Italy who had the courage to write the Holy Father a whole bunch of times who finally took action. I'm up against the end of my program. Join me tomorrow. I'll pick up on this story. God bless you all. <laughs>